So this evening, I would like to look at actually uh, what we do when we do the bowing in the morning and in the evening. And that actually it has uh, lots to do. I mean, it seems maybe just like a ritual, as a memory from our time in uh, Korea. But actually, we do it because it has a direct meaning uh, connected to the practice, connected to why we're here. And so you might have noticed, though it's a bit far, (laughs) and the recipients are very small because I bring them from uh, France, is that uh, we generally light a candle, uh, we light the incense, and we offer some water. And why we do this is because each of them are a symbol of awakening. And so the first one is a candle. So we light the candle, and so the candle gives a flame, gives us light, and actually it symbolizes two things. The first thing it symbolizes is selflessness. Because as a candle gives light, it disappears. But when we talk about selflessness, we have to be careful. Because sometimes just the word selflessness seems to imply that one, on one side I need to disappear, and on the other side I must be totally for others. When here the idea is more there is a sort of emptying. And by emptying ourselves of what I would call a certain level of self-centeredness, self-obsession, then actually there is more space for others. And I think it's the same with the candle. By, I mean, if you don't lit it, nothing happens. I mean, you can have the candle forever after. Nothing will happen to that candle. But if you lit it, slowly, slowly it will disappear. And at the same time it will give light. So it's the same idea to see that actually part of the process of meditation, part of the process of the path, is a certain dissolution, a certain emptying of things which are really fixed, really solid and which in a way stop us from opening to the world, opening to others. So in a way, it's like the meditation, the practice, is letting us up, but not just for ourselves, but also for others. And in that lighting, something is dissolved. And that's one of the other aspects of the candle, is that it's illuminated, which means it's uh, matte, and then if you lit it, then it becomes illuminated for itself. But it's also illuminating. So it's also giving light to others. And I think to me the practice has its two functions. We have to be careful not to think of the practice of just being like, in a way, self obsessed, self-involved. But there is more light brought to ourselves. What I think, how I think, what I feel, how I feel, what I sense, how I sense, 
the way I relate, the way I hear. So it's really making this more clear. And at the same time, it's removing the obstacle where we can, in which, share our potential, share our clarity, our peace, our compassion with others. <coughs> then you have the next one, is the incense. So again, you light, we light the incense, and again, the same thing as the candle, that the incense disappear as it gives a fragrance. So again, this idea of self <coughs> And this is something you might have noticed today. And this is one of the points of the silence. The silence is really not to give you a hard time. The silence is actually, when we silent, we can be more aware what is it we think. And if we bring a kind awareness to what we think, we actually see, we think about ourselves a lot. And so today you might have been doing, you know, trying to be aware of the breath or just sitting here. And if you look at what is it that distracted you, it's a lot to do with me, I am here, look at me, I am fun. And it's a lot of resolve around the self, which is not a bad idea, but I think it's how much. And so with the silence, we can be so much more aware of that, to kind of really, and also with the meditation, of course. So it's not to judge it, but to see, oh, yeah. Because you see, the more we think about me, the less there is space for others. And so the selflessness is not that we disappear, and then others, you know, it takes us over. That's not the idea but that actually we start to have a different relationship with ourselves, with our thought, with our feeling, our sensation, the way we relate. So the selflessness is not something goes so that something, I would say, more stable, more open, more creative can be there instead. Instead of this kind of like self-obsession, then you can have more like kind of this, what I would call a quiet confidence, which is, doesn't need to be expressed all the time, doesn't need to be reassured all the time. This is me, I am me, this is my story. <laughs> like it's kind of like we have to comment and tell our story all the time in order to feel this is me. And I think the meditation is trying to make us, we can feel ourselves as stable, open, creative in a different way. We don't need so much commenting, so much story making. And maybe what we can do is possibly more experiencing ourselves in the world. And I think that's what the selflessness is about. And through that selflessness being more ourselves in the world with others. And so the other aspect of um, with the incense, which is interesting, it's a fragrance, is that it's pervasive. The incense doesn't think, oh, I don't like them over there. I I'm not going to go there. They really, I don't like them. I don't know why, but I don't like them. So I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to go to this one. 
they look nice, yeah, yeah, I think, you know, they're okay, you know, my kind of people. So it kind of, there's kind of like a tunnel going to. But no, the incense, it's pervasive. It goes everywhere without distinction. And I think this is also the, we, we are so kind of specific. It's so, I mean, you might have noticed today, you're in silence, most of the people you don't know, and very likely some you think, hmm, I like him. Mm, I don't know about her or whatever. It's kind of, it's very immediate. We have really no, not much uh, information, but we kind of make a lot out of nothing. That's what is very interesting. And to see how we, we kind of have a tendency to distinguish, to differentiate, which of course is useful, but if become too overpowering, then actually it's very problematic, it's very difficult. So to me, it's again, if the sense of self and what is me and mine then dissipate, then actually we can meet the world in a much more open, wide open way. So we can have a much more wide reach of looking at life, not in terms of what I want, I need from it, but in terms of its own existence. Because often we look at others, at our friend, at our partner, at our society, in terms of what is it it's going to give me. And here the idea of this selflessness, this pervasiveness, is that we can meet in relationship to the world in a different way, where there is more this I would say this kind of uh, what I would call creative openness instead of this kind of narrow <coughs> kind of definition, identification. And the last one is water. And water again, it has two aspects. One, one is that it reflects. So the, the water, any body of water, I mean if it's not covered over by lots of things, <coughs> body of water generally just reflect things as they come. So it reflects me if I look in it, it reflects animals, trees, it reflects anything. But as soon as the thing is gone, it does not keep it. It does not say, oh, I like that one, I'm going to keep it. Or that one, I don't like it, I'm not going to reflect it. It just reflects whatever comes and when that thing is gone or that person is gone, nothing is left. So it's kind of, in a way, a, a way to be in the world which is less sticky. So that we're in the world, we really encounter the world, but we're not sticking to it so much. It's not kind of like... It's interesting how things happen to us. And you, and you sit in meditation. You sit in meditation and... I hope you are relatively well and nobody is doing anything to you as far as I know in uh, here. And you might think, yeah, that guy, ten years ago he said this. How could he say that? Mm -hmm. you know? and, and that is sticking. 
It's like, you know, the thing came upon the water and the water kept it for 10 years. And then nothing else can reflect because that thing is stuck there. And it doesn't mean that one cannot consider it there and then, reflect on it, but to see if we stick with it, it can occupy more space than it needs to do. To do. It arises, it's gone. It's really gone. But we keep it. That's what is interesting, that keeping, that keeping, that holding. We kind of, in a way, solidify, fix things. And then the other aspect of the water is adaptability. You can have, uh, it can be rectangle in a rectangle ball, in a circle, in, I mean, it just adapts to any places. And to me, this is one of the beauty. And also, I think, a beauty of the practice that we'll do here, the questioning, is that it helps us to be more questioning, more exploring, more adaptable, more fluid. Because I think we have a tendency to fixate. We fix ourselves, we fix others. And as soon as you do this, you stop. It's like trying to stop water. You try to stop water, but generally more come, more come, and then it goes over. I mean, water needs to flow. And it's the same. How do we kind of, you know, we stop our life, fix our life, fix things in our life? How can we let them more flow? I think this is what the, the meditation, the path is about. How can we help things to flow? How can they flow in an easier manner? How can we be more fluid, more adaptable? And in a way, I would say, having in a certain way more choices, not in terms that we want to have a ton of choices like in an American supermarket. The first time I went to America and I went to buy some apple juice in a supermarket, I was like, you know, I spent 30 minutes. There's so many of them. I was kept thinking, you know, there's too much choice. But I'm not talking about this kind of choice. I'm talking more about knowing I am not fixed here. I can make just one different choice. And so this is why we offer these things, because actually they are symbols of awakening, symbol of wisdom, of compassion. And so in a way, what is the connection in practical terms to the practice, to what we do? How do we go from the symbol to us doing something which might help us to loosen the fixity, to might, might help us to bring of a, kind of a, a softer sense of self, bring us a little more kind of a, being more pervasive, <coughs> less defined. <coughs> and actually, is in terms of the meditation that we're doing here, to see that there are many, some of you have a Zen background, some of you have a Vipassana background, some of you have other background in terms of Buddhism or just Tai Chi or different things, mindfulness. And so I think it's very important to see that if I just look at the Buddhist tradition, you have de many different methods of practicing, many different methods of meditation. 
And generally you will be told this one is the best one. This is the most direct, this is the most complete, this is the supreme, this is ultimate, whatever. But I think we have to be careful. These are just techniques. And the technique arose. They arose over 2,500 years. The Buddha suggested many at his time. He really was not a one-man show. He really was a multiple. He really had many different uh, suggestions for meditation. And in a way, after that, many people meditated in their own way, like we do meditation here. And each of them, in a way, what I would call creatively engaged with the practice and with the time and the geography and the culture. And then over time, you had lots of different techniques. And so I think we have to be careful not to be kind of like, uh, during the week, we will present, we have presented the breath. Tomorrow I will present the listening meditation. And after that, we'll present the Korean-style questioning meditation just as kind of the theme for the week. But it doesn't mean that this is better than anything else, but it's one good method among many, three good methods among many. But what we have to see, more than a technique, more than any specific method, what is essential is actually what is it we are cultivating when we use any of these techniques. What is a common thread? What are the main components? And how do they work? Because to me, we meditate, and hopefully we do it because it works, because it has some effect. And I would say, what has the effect is not so much the technique. Each technique will have a slight different angle and a slight different effect. But what is the most important effect is the two components of concentration and inquiry. And in the inside tradition, it's called samatha and vipassana. And when I was in Korea, uh, I mean, we, my teacher used to talk a lot about song song jok jok, bright bright, quiet quiet. And to me, this is the equivalent of samatha vipassana or concentration and inquiry. And so I would say these are the primary component that we need to cultivate when we meditate so that then, yes, we can manifest the symbol of awakening, the selflessness, the fluidity, the pervasiveness, the illumination. And so to see that that's what is important. Less important the technique, and the technique will be more about what suits me, what talks to me, what can I do more easily, what fits my physiology, what fits the way I am with my mind. Some people need some more focused concentration. Some people need wide, very wide concentration. But what is important is to cultivate some concentration. And so concentration, I think we have to be careful when we think of the term concentration. I think we have a funny relationship with concentration because of our education. 
At school, we were told, concentrate. And so when we concentrate, we tense up. I must concentrate. I must concentrate on the breath. Yes. And then generally you tense, which kind of defeats a little the purpose of the meditation, <laughs> to kind of, kind of relax a little the fixity, the solidity. So to be careful there, when we sit in meditation and we try to concentrate on the breath, on the sound, or on the questioning, to see that we're not trying to tense around something. But like with the breath, we're trying to rest upon something. With the sound, we're trying to open to something. With the questioning, we're trying to anchor in something. So personally, I would see the concentration more as an anchoring device, not as a tensing, holding device. We're not trying to hold the breath. We're not trying to grasp the sound or hold on to the question. But we're using them as anchoring device. And so in terms of concentration, the main effect of it is actually to come back. Often there is this idea that the main of idea of concentration is to stay. It's a bit like, you know, concentrated tomato paste. I must concentrate. I must become more and more kind of, you know, this intense meditator. You know, so I'm not just Martin. I'm concentrated tomato paste like Martin. So it's kind of like, you know, there is this kind of like... Or like concentrated milk. You know, like it kind of become more... But I don't think that's the idea. The idea is more of an anchoring. So it's kind of like a kind of a anchoring routine in the experience. So that actually we use the breath, the sound, or the questioning as a way to come back, as a way to remember to come back, as a way to make the choice to come back. To me, that's, it's one of the important uh, functions of concentration, of anchoring, that we actually make the choice to come back. And so you can have a thousand thoughts and then you will have a thousand times the opportunity to come back, to make the choice to, oh, I am daydreaming. Should I continue to enjoy daydreaming? It's a very enjoyable activity when you sit in meditation. <laughs> Time passes very fast. <laughs> but that's not meditating. So it's just to see, you know, we can have the courage to leave the, the daydreaming which is so enjoyable and come back to the breath, the sound, all the questioning, which possibly is slightly less enjoyable because it's more multi-perspectival. In a daydreaming, everything goes according to plan. This is what is enjoyable. You can tinker with it, improve it, you know. And then when we come back, you come back to, well, okay, I am here. Well, I mean, you know, I was told then, you know, I would have an awakening. I would be like a Christmas tree. You know? 
Where are the light? Where is, you know, I was supposed to levitate. You know? And so there is none of that. But when you come back, you come back to the whole moment. You come back to being present to your life with others, with nature, with the rooks in this moment. And so in a way what we're doing is not because this is better than anything else, but this is more like a kind of a way to come back to the whole thing. Because generally we identify with a small bit. We kind of get kind of stuck to a small bit and then forget everything else. And the anchoring is very much about coming back to the whole thing and being with it. So then we come back to the breath, we come back to the sound, we come back to the question. And when we make the choice to come back, at that moment we do two things. We don't feed, for example, the mental habits. We dissolve their power and then they can come back to their creative function. So daydreaming can come back to, if I need to imagine something, I can. But I am not taken over by it. I have the choice to do it or not. When I was, uh, many years ago, I was in South Africa and we went to visit a prison where friends of ours teach meditation there. And I was talking about uh, daydreaming and there was this young man saying, yes, if you are in prison for a few years, you need to do daydreaming a bit because it helps to feel a little more pleasant feeling too. But not too much, otherwise you really get frustrated. And then in a way it was kind of looking at that creative function of imagining and the difference when you're overwhelmed by it, when it takes you really away and then generally causes frustration because what you dream is not the same as what you experience. So to see that, to me, that's a main function of concentration, of anchoring. Making the choice to come back, that's one function. But even more than that, not feeding all our habits and bring them back to their creative functioning. And so when we do that, when we come back to the breath, each time we come back to the breath, each time we come back to listening, each time we come back to questioning, we actually are developing stability, calm, and spaciousness. We still have thought, but there's so much more space in the thought, and we don't feel so impelled to think every single thought which arises. We can say, hmm, I don't need to go with that one. I don't need to do that one. Mm, this one I need to pay attention to. So in a way we have more freedom. But it's a stable freedom. And then the next one, the other component, is inquiry. And so inquiry again, you can do it in many different ways. You can do it by just being aware of the changing nature. For example, tomorrow we can be aware of the changing nature of sounds. And we're very lucky tomorrow because we, 
we can open the window and we can hear the rooks and then you can see I mean the rook come and go but they're not always rookie you know they have their moments you know the same so it's kind of like part of that is to be more in tune in the experience with the changing nature of things that things change and you might say yeah yeah I know things change but it's different to know it than to know it experientially that's what we're trying to do with the inquiry it's experiential inquiry. So we're trying to feel it in our bones, in a way. As Stephen said later on, you know, we're supposed to question with the marrow of our bone, to question in our body. Because I think we have a very strong tendency to permanentize. Possibly today, you might have thought, I feel so sleepy today, I am going to feel sleepy like this the whole week. And then think, that's not much fun. Or I have some pain in the body, I'm going to have that pain through the week. Or I did not sleep well last night, I'm not going to sleep well the whole week, or whatever. I presume some of you might have had such thought. But this is one thing I can guarantee. Normally, it should change. It's rare when things stay exactly the same, non-stop. And to me, this is what we're trying to do. When we cultivate inquiry, either by questioning, either by being aware of change. By being aware of change, <coughs> it helps us to see that when we experience something, instead of straight away thinking it's going to last forever, to think, to question, how long is this going to last? And this makes a big difference, I feel. Whenever I have any difficulty or anything, I feel funny, heavy feeling, or whatever it is, I kind of really try to feel it in the body, and then I time to time I check. Is it still there? Has it changed? Is it different? And then you can see that a lot of things, they come and they go. They don't last so long. You know? Once I was, it was so, so interesting. I was, uh, we had a little, you know, spouse spout because of a parking problem. You know, so Stephen says something, and I think, Ooh! and he feels a little unpleasant. And then instead of saying something in return, so he feels a little, Ooh, too. I thought, how long is this going to last? <laughs> so I just observed it. And actually, it lasted between two red lights. <laughs> and then it was gone. It really was gone. It did not come back. Instead of amplifying, this is a thing, you know. Something they come and they go. And something will last longer and then you creatively engage. This is coming again and again. I need to do something about this. So in a way, the anchoring is to be more in the experience and the inquiry is to be more aware of the, of the quality of the experience of how it feels, how it changes, how it moves. 
And then that, this inquiry, that helps us to develop brightness. The brightness Master Kuzan, my teacher in Korea, used to talk about. Brightness, clarity, but also I feel openness. And so in a way, we're cultivating these two things together. Quietness and clarity, stability and openness. And that becomes what I would call creative awareness. And that is then what we are actually building the muscle of as we hear. And I know very likely not much is happening. But I think that's fine. Because <laughs> <laughs> you see, it's like, you know, if you go to the gym, you know, Stephen, I don't know if he mentioned it or if he will mention it. But for the first time in his life, for a long time, for 10 days, he went walking in the mountain with friends. Every day they walked eight hours. And I said, well, you know, he walked eight hours a day for 10 days. You know, he's going to come back really fit and everything. And he came back and he was exactly the same, you know. So not much has changed. We said, I feel better. I feel full of energy. I feel my body and things of that nature. And, and I think it's the same. We sit in meditation and at one level... It's like Stephen coming back and he looks exactly the same. But inside, he feels a little different. And I think that's the same. We're cultivating, every time we're cultivating, the anchoring, the inquiry, and slowly, 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 it makes a difference. It builds up the muscle of the creative awareness. And that's what then we can take into our daily life, into our relationship, into our work, into everything we do. Then another thing I wanted to mention was the three bows. We bow three times. And some of you might think, you know, why are we bowing? What are we bowing to? Etc. I don't want to bow to some funny idols and things of that nature. So actually, uh, we're bowing, and it's more like a kind of like a, as a remembrance, also as a kind of like a bit like taking refuge, or like honoring something, or reminding us of our intention. So basically, when we bow three times, we bow to the Buddha, we bow to the Dharma, we bow to the Sangha, or you could say we take refuge in awakening. We take refuge in our potential for awakening. And to me, I think when we bow the first time, we're actually bowing, we're actually taking refuge into our power. Because in a way, it's our power to awaken. How does it feel when you are in a bad dream? I remember many years ago when I was a nun in Korea. This is one of the nightmares I used to have. I used to be in this nightmare, which felt very nightmarish for me, because I would feel I was in a classroom, in high school, and it was awful, and I was stuck, so feeling very powerless. And then I would suddenly wake up, and I would say, hey, I am a nun in Korea, I am meditating. 
And it was such a relief. <laughs> it was so half. Oh, I'm not stuck in school anymore. And so in a way, when we are in a dream, we actually feel powerless. It's like kind of the dream takes us in all kinds of weird places. And often very unpleasant places. And, so, and when we wake up, if I have a, a nightmare, when I wake up, I think, ah, oh, great. The nightmare is not reality. Reality is me being this, that, or another. And I think it's the same. When we bow to the Buddha, when we bow to our potential of being a Buddha or becoming awake, is actually awakening from this kind of uh, stuckness, powerlessness in our habits, in our kind of feeling fixed, feeling kind of stuck. And then we wake up, and then there is more movement, there is more creativity, there is more freedom. And so in a way, that's what the first bow is about, is in a way bowing, taking refuge into what I would call the power of our wisdom, the power of our compassion, the power of being able to wake up, to not be stuck. Then the second bow is to the Dharma. And so the Dharma can be the teaching, or the Dharma can be the practice. And so in a way we're bowing, we're taking refuge in the teaching, and I would say in the teaching not because they're sacred, but in the teaching because they make sense to us, they talk to us, and they help us. So I think that's why we have to be careful. Because it's said by a Buddha or by the great teacher, it doesn't mean that it's sacred per se, but it's more, is that message, is that teaching, is it useful to me? That things are impermanent, is this useful to me? That one can become more compassionate, is this useful to me? So it's kind of like, in a way, remembering that. What is it in the teaching that speaks to me, that inspires me, that helps me to be more creative, to be more exploring, more calm, more peaceful? And so in a way, we take refuge in that, in what inspires us. And also we take refuge in the practice. That in a way, all of us have come to this retreat and I am doing the practice like you're doing the practice. And personally, in terms of this form, we only teach this form once a year. And one of the things I like about the form is when we walk, we do the walking, and I know that because we're quite numerous, we, can, we walk at a kind of slightly slowish pace compared to Korea, but we still walk. And what I find wonderful is even if it looks like we're walking slowly, when I come and sit here, it's like, bing! I feel my whole body like, wow! And for five minutes, I'm like, zing! You know? I think, you know, next minute, awakening, you know? And so, in a way, that's a practice. You know, we do the practice, and over time, we feel its effect. And so we take refuge in the practice 
not of others, but in our own practice, that I do myself. The teacher, I do my own practice, you do your own practice. Nobody can do it for us. And I think that's an advantage. We can do it ourselves. And then the third refuge, the third bowing is for the Sangha. And that's a community. And I think we can look at that refuge and that bow in two different ways. I bow to this community. But actually, I bow to myself with this community. I am part of this community. The community we create during a week. And I think to see that what we're doing at the moment, I don't think that many of you could do it on your own at home. As many of you experience doing exactly the same schedule as you have today as you at home. Some people can, but not many. And so we did it not because of us. We did it because of all of us being ready to do it. I mean, we the teacher, we show up, but you also show up. I mean, you adult, you're not obliged to come. <laughs> you are free, be. But you all show up, even if it's not easy all the time. And so to me, that's what the community, bowing to the community is about that. That we show up. To our, every time we come and sit here, we walk. Every time we remind ourselves to be mindful, to be kind, to be open. We're showing up to our Buddha nature, you could say, to our awakening potential. So that's what we bow to. But I feel we bow also to the wider community, the wider community of sentient beings. To me, a, a, a retreat, when we are in our daily life, we generally have uh, very specific things to do. Me, I am at home, my mother lives downstairs, and a lot of my time at home is actually keeping an eye on her, helping her, taking her, doing things. So that's my focus. So I'm kind of focused there. And when you are at home, you focused in your work, in your children, in all kinds of things. And because of that, focus and we see less other people, less the big picture. And I think when we bow to the Sangha, I think we bow to the community of being, sentient beings, the tree, the people, everything we share life with. So we're not bowing to a sacred community, but I think we're bowing to us feeling connected to life. And I think that's what the retreat is about, to kind of, again, try to open, because we can become so constricted in very specific things which we need to deal with, we need to take care of. But I think on a retreat we can expand a little. First expand a little by being with a stranger we don't know at all. And so we, hey, yeah, I can be with this stranger. I can be a community with this stranger. Community with the whole environment around us. But also community of life. So that's what I hope 
that we can cultivate together during this week. So we have a little time if there are any questions or comments. Personally, what I would say is that it's good to have a main practice, like a main technique that you find useful. So there are what I would call different main techniques. For example, you have awareness practice. But then you might think awareness of the breath is one technique, one main technique. But I don't think it's so. I think awareness is a main technique. And then that you be aware of the breath, aware of the sound, aware of the body, that I think is all awareness. So I think we have to be careful to think, oh, I must be just aware of the breath or just aware of this. That I think really makes it very narrow. Because awareness, I mean, the Buddha talked about the four foundations of mindfulness. So in a way, there is nothing we cannot be aware of. So then you have, the, in the Zen practice, I would say you have two main techniques. You have the just sitting, silent illumination, or you have the koan technique, the question. And yes, that's a little different. You know, because one is quite active and one is like not doing anything. And so I think, you know, then, you know, you, one might be more suited to you than the other. And then, of course, you have other technique, Tibetan technique, and etc. So I think it's, what is important is if we find a main technique which we're comfortable with, awareness, just sitting, questioning, or whatever else. But that doesn't mean this is the only thing which will be useful for us to do. Because I think some things can be complementary. So it doesn't mean every two minutes you do a different thing. But you could do, like personally, uh, for 10 years I just did questioning that we will present in two days. And then I encounter awareness practice. And then I, re- I thought, this is a good idea, this awareness thing. And then now what I found myself is complement one with the other. So personally, that's not the way I'm going to teach. <laughs> but personally, that's what I would do. I would generally do mo- mostly questioning, but embedded in a wider context of possibly the breath, or the sound, or the body. And I find that the two complement each other. And I don't find I'm doing two different things. But yes, I don't think you could do uh, a kind of a tantric visualization and at the same time do the questioning. They're kind of two different things. That I would say, you know, one you do one or you do the other. I don't think you can do that together. I mean, some people might might have tried. You see, I have never done visualization, so I don't know, maybe I could complement in some way. So personally, we're going to present the breath. We presented the breath today because most people are familiar with that. 
But personally, I think it's important not to see the breath as sacred. This is the only thing to do. The breath is just one method which works for a lot of people, though not for everybody. Then listening. Tomorrow I will present listening because I think it's a really good method. And then after that will be more Korean Zen with the questioning. But again, the questioning you can do in different ways. And so we give suggestion, but then each of you has to interpret those suggestions in your own way. Like if you look at the breath, there is so many ways to do the breath. Some people will tell you the only way to do it is to be aware of the nostril. Some people will tell you to be aware of the abdomen. Some people will tell you to count the breath. And then you have 10 different ways of counting the breath. So you have many different ways. And so I think it's kind of like we have to be careful not to say this is sacred, but just I try this, I try to find something which is not too complicated because what is important is not the technique, is the anchoring. That the breath, the sound, the question, or whatever it is, loving kindness, awareness, can help me to anchor. Anchoring in the point, not so much the, the, the aspect of the technique. Okay, so if there is uh, nothing else, now there is some uh, walking meditation. And so this is like free walking meditation, which means you can walk indoors or you can walk outdoors. And then we'll meet at quarter to nine for the final sitting. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.